cliffcentral.com. It is time for us to cross to Jean-Jacques Cornish, who has the latest for us in African analysis this morning. Always one of our favorite parts of the show. Good morning, Jean-Jacques Cornish. How are you, sir? Bonjour. I'm exceedingly well, thanks. Very good. I, I think, you know, you've been exceedingly well every time we've spoken to you this year, which is excellent because I, mm. I, I don't know too many people who uh, can say that on a weekly basis. Most people complain and moan, as we were discussing earlier. I had a bad day in the mid-50s, and nobody paid attention. So I've made sure that I've been well ever since then. <laughs> I love it. All right. So, Jean-Jacques, let's start with um, Ethiopia. I know that these peace talks going on there. And I would like to hear what you have to say about them, because as far as we know, the scheduled meeting at the end of last month was delayed for unexplained logistical reasons, which we're still not entirely sure are valid or reasonable. And now both the Ethiopian government and these uh, Tigran rebels that you've told us about before in other episodes say that they are ready to meet up. But we've got no date or venue from the South Africans who have chosen to be uh, the hosts of this because apparently we don't have a dog in the fight, as per our previous discussion. So they want us to arbitrate and to um, to mediate between these two parties. What's really going on, JJ? Well, it's very difficult to, to understand. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, says that the situation in Ethiopia is spiraling out of control. Now, the two parties, the government and the rebels, are under pressure from the African Union, from the United Nations, from the United States, and from the European Union to actually uh, get down and talk. All of these bodies have expressed concern about it. Uh, and um, uh, Musafaki, the uh, head of the AU Commission, has said, called for an immediate and unconditional ceasefire. Well, the government says, okay, we will have a ceasefire, and um, but we want to make sure we keep uh, the integrity of the country safe. So we've got to control the airports and we've got to control strategic areas. The rebels have said, we will uh, uh, adhere to a ceasefire, we will obey. So it looks like uh, they, they might well be getting together again. I wish I could get a South African official to say where exactly they're going to meet, because it was Musa Faki said, why don't you go to South Africa? Now, I know that at one point, uh, Abiy Ahmed, the uh, Ethiopian uh, Prime Minister, was saying South Africa really is uh, uh, partisan in this matter and, and more concerned for the rebels. Uh, he didn't like the neutrality of South Africa, but he seems to have come aboard. So, uh, it, and it's interesting that we should be called into this because, of course, President Ramaphosa uh, offered to mediate. And when he was chair of the African Union, he, he, he wanted to mediate, but nothing really happened. So let's see. And, and uh, you know, really hope that uh, it, it will be here in South Africa, giving journalists like me a, a story to write about that doesn't involve Ukraine or Liz Truss <laughs> or, or, you know, something something that somebody might buy. I, I don't know. It's a long, long time since we've had such a thing. Well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, how, how little coverage African news does get in the local press and how little interest is paid, sadly and unfortunately, to our immediate neighborhood. That's why, again, I'm so happy we get to do this with you every two weeks and it's brought to you, of course, by the Johannesburg Business School, who deserve all the credit for making it happen. But, JJ, when we talk about these things, South Africa obviously has been an arbitrator stroke mediator in many of these conflicts. So famously, Jacob Zuma was involved in the Congo uh, peace talks for some time. But 
have we proven that we actually have the ability to make a difference? Uh, because some would say that we've squandered so much of our our international credibility and capital over the, the years since like Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki, that maybe people don't want us to be the the middleman in these discussions. I mean, you could choose a, a number of countries who perhaps have more success than we do. Well, there's no doubt that uh, our days as mediator, when we worked on the Congo, when and, and Jacob Zuma did a bang-up job on Burundi. I remember people mm. getting very irritated when I explained. He was a very good mediator. He used to uh, he was very tough too. You want to go to the loo? Fine, good. Sign this piece of paper and you can go you know, point Percy at the porcelain. Uh, I, I once said to him at a dinner he had or a lunch he had after successful negotiations, how can you do this? You know, when you have a man's arm bent behind his back, how can you put a pen in his hand and ask him to sign the paper? Do you, does that sort of pressure tactic work? And he said, how do you think they worked with us at Codessa? You know, so it was a very interesting experience. But he was good. The fact is, the French couldn't stand the fact that we were getting involved. And when we got involved in uh, um, Cote d'Ivoire, for example, uh, the president at the time said, we don't have any understanding of the actual African spirit. And uh, Tabo Mbeki went spare at that one. Today it's changed. And, and I think... People have a, a sort of fatigue about working on African negotiations. So yeah. when somebody like South Africa does step up, they're just too grateful for that. But there's no doubt, Gareth, that we have lost the moral high ground that we had post Mandela. And uh, so we, you know, a success in, in, in Ethiopia would be a very good thing for us. JJ, let's turn our attention to the Western Sahara, which is also never far from the headlines, <clears throat> even if, again, it doesn't get the attention that maybe other international stories do. Have we made any progress there? Because we also know that, you know, <laughs> with Morocco, it's very, very difficult to get any kind of solution, even proposed solution on the table. We know that the Western Sahara remains an area of persistent conflict. There are a number of interests working against each other in that part of the world. Um, who are the who are the power players at this stage, and and is there any progress being made at all? You know, South Africa took nine years to keep the promise that Madiba made to recognise the Western Sahara when democracy came to South Africa. But when they did it, they came in in spades, and uh, they are the most redoubtable uh, uh, supporters of the Western Sahara. Now, we have Ibrahim Ghali, the president of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, the Western Sahara government, arriving in South Africa today for a state visit. And it's the third visit he's making. Now, when Ibrahim Ghali was in uh, Tunisia just a, a couple of weeks back when they had the Japanese Tokyo International Conference on African Development, and it was hosted in Tunisia, the Moroccans got so angry that they received Ibrahim Ghali that they withdrew their ambassador, organized a, a economic boycott, and, you know, just bullying their smaller neighbor as much as they could. Now, are the Moroccans going to get that angry about South Africa hosting Ibrahim Ghali? I somehow doubt it. But then by the same token, Morocco has taken over from apartheid South Africa as the kind of problem child of Africa, as the bully boy. And, and they've also inherited apartheid South Africa's 
unenviable ability to shoot itself in the foot. You know, when there are two decisions to make and one would be entirely wrong, apartheid South Africa would take that one. And Morocco is doing that too. They've actually turned on. It was the French who supported their occupation of Western Sahara. And they've now turned on France saying, you should be doing more. You should be uh, doing what uh, Donald Trump did and what the Spanish who were bullied into uh, accepting Morocco's autonomy in the Western Sahara. You should be doing that. And they turned on the French to the extent that for two years you haven't had high-level meetings between French and Moroccan officials, and the French have actually turned to Algeria, a backer of Western Sahara, who also have a lot of oil and gas and stuff that France needs very badly. The fact is, though, uh, Morocco ran out, if they do withdraw their ambassador from South Africa, last time they did, it took 13 years for him to come back. And uh, they were very, very worried about that. Now, they are, of course, members of the African Union, trying desperately to ease Western Sahara out, having no luck with it at the moment. The fact is, though, they they uh, they tried when organization, its predecessor, Organization of African Unity, mm-hmm. recognized Western Sahara. Uh, the Morocco stormed out, and, and uh, they were out for many, many, many years. They came, and, and they said they wanted to become members of the European Union. Well, the European Union said, you know, what have you got to offer? Mm. Dacha, oranges, <laughs> and prostitutes. No, we don't need that. Thank you very much. And so the Morocco said, okay, in that case, we'll go back to you, Africa. How about that? I think it's a matter of time before the Africa, and they've, all they've managed to do so far is give to some African countries phosphates stolen from the Western Sahara. So I think it's just a matter of time before the Africans realize that Morocco has nothing much to offer them and they've just become a normal member of the African Union. They won't have the muscle that they'd like to think they have. But meanwhile, interesting to see what comes of the meeting with Ibrahim Ghali, how strong the statement will be from uh, South Africa. You wouldn't want to be the Moroccan ambassador in South Africa because you get lectured every two weeks about being the last colonial power, about giving up the Western Sahara. And, uh, and uh, you know, South Africa, as I say, is at the forefront of the fight for the autonomy for the Western Sahara. You know, Morocco, they, they, had, they were at war. And in 1991, then when a peace was declared, Morocco promised to have a referendum on the future of uh, Western Sahara on self-administration. Uh, uh, mm. And they've not kept this promise. South Africa keeps saying to them, hey, remember your promise. So it's interesting. Yeah, and very messy. I just, you know, one morning I'd love us to have an African analysis where we're not dealing with a perpetual and ongoing conflict. I'd love us to talk about, you know, some new hydroelectric scheme that's been put up or some, mm. in, some incredible uh, new breakthrough that's been made in, you know, mining some rare mineral because god alone knows it's always the same bloody story in western sahara now in ethiopia and for a long time in the congo i mean it would be nice if those three areas just keep their keep their their house in order anyway i mean there is one other place that's always fun to check in on and that is nigeria but i'm afraid also bad news on this front because the flooding there they've had terrible floods more than 600 people are dead 2.5 2.5 million people affected by this flooding. Uh, JJ, obviously we're going to hear from the Europeans that, well, this is what happens when you aren't serious about climate change. But there are lots of people in Nigeria who, 
they, their last concern is not burning fossil fuels. Some of them are building their houses in places in the, 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 the Niger Delta, which is obviously under water. I know friends of mine who said they've been to, to Lagos and to, um, and, and to various other parts of, of Nigeria, and they've said people just build their houses wherever they're. So obviously, if you're on the floodplain, this is this is not great news, and we know the population in Nigeria is enormous. Well, you know they have the Benue River as well. The Niger and Benue Rivers are, are the, both their riverbeds have now f- flooded, and then of course from neighbouring uh, Cameroon, they've opened a dam, and the water's been flowing into Nigeria from there. So Cameroon is as popular as a rattlesnake in a lucky dip with uh, Nigeria at the moment. But the fact is, this is being called an overwhelming disaster. And, uh, you know, it's the worst flooding in a, in a decade. Uh, 200,000 homes destroyed. So it's very, very, very serious for Africa's most populous country. And, uh, you know, the fact is, yes, of course, it's to, a lot of it is uh, to be attributed to global warming. And, and again, Africa paying the big price for a global warming uh, that uh, and and one of the least uh, liable or the least uh, guilty of causing global warming africa's paying this big price so uh, that's certainly going to come up at the next uh, cop meeting uh, you know why are we paying and you have promised mitigation you the countries that have already uh, been involved in in uh, polluting the planet uh, so, uh, and this is certainly going to be one of the cases that will be raised. Well, that's quite a lot for us to swallow this uh, Tuesday morning. But thank you, as always. It's good to hear what's going on on the continent. And we can only get that information from JJ Cornish, the one and only. It's good to have you back on the show. And thank you very much, JJ. Have an excellent week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Great JJ. Pleasure being here. Cheers, cheers. All the best. And of course, Ciao. JJ Cornish and African Analysis is brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School where we get a chance to look at what is happening around the continent. Always interesting. Lots of, you know, perspective that we wouldn't otherwise have, thanks to JJ. Mm.